Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to look at uh, the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole thing up front because of its length. But I will read John 6, 35 to 58, so you can jump there in your text and follow along. John 6. John 6, starting in verse 35. These are the words of God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for life, the life of the world, is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the, Father, as the living Father sent me, and I, have, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me and also will live because of me. He also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we gather as your assembly this evening to approach you, to glorify you, to renew covenant with you together as your assembly. The ethics of your law word takes priority in our lives, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten and enliven us so that we would be equipped to labor for the kingdom of your Son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we're talking about compulsion and liberation, and in his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis said this, The hardness of God is kinder than the softest of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. So I borrowed this last part from Lewis and used it as the title for the sermon. So what does Lewis mean? What does he mean by his compulsion is our liberation? Christ's compulsion, that is the compelling nature of his forceful work, 
at dragging men to salvation. That's our liberation. And that is the thing that frees us from being slaves to sin. Now, many people would not use that type of word or those words to describe this whole thing. Many would not use words like drag or compulsion or even force to describe the process by which Christ brings someone to the Father through the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. But according to verse 44 in our text, this is precisely how we should understand this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That word draw is not a passive weak verb. It's not a passive weak verb at all. It means to pull or to drag. Um, and a lot of times it's reference to pulling a bucket of water out of a well, dragging it out of a well. That's kind of the word picture it's used. Um, it's also used like the time when Paul was dragged out of town to be stoned. So it's not a weak verb at all. It's an aggressive verb and only an aggressive fight against condemnation and enslavement to sin will suffice. Compulsion, liberation. The compulsion that is God's grace is the liberation of us. That's the idea. God's grace has a backbone to it, and it alone is the great liberator of all men. But liberation has to be understood in terms of Christ's atonement and Christ's covenantal dealings with man. It is not enough to just speak in generalities. To say that the gospel deals with sin is to be somewhat ambiguous. Um, how does it deal with sin? Right? In, in what ways does the gospel deal with sin? Uh, what, is, what is it about the intrinsic nature of sin itself that needs a solution? It needs to be rectified. There's some sort of resolvement that needs to happen. Um, and, a, and a violent resolving at that. So how might, how might that process work itself out? Those types of questions. So we will speak of Christ's liberation, um, his compulsion and his liberation, but we're not going to speak about it vaguely. We're not going to speak about it vaguely. So that said, let's be very direct. The great problem, the great problem that the gospel solves is our condemnation in Adam. The great problem the gospel solves is our condemnation in Adam. We know, we know uh, sort of as confessional reformed folks that sin is the violation of God's law. Sin is the violation of God's law, both in actual committed transaction, transactions and transgressions, things we actually do that are sinful, but also things that are actually omitted actions. We're commanded to say, love the orphan and the widow, and we just choose not to. That's an action, but more like a passive one, what we call omission of sin. Now, this sin, however, isn't merely against God's law alone. It's not merely against God's law alone. It's an affront to the holiness of God, no doubt. It's an all-out attack on the person of God. It's a provocation of, God, provocation of God's wrath. It's this incitement of God's ang anger. No, no doubt that's what sin is. But sin is the refusal to abide by the terms and conditions of the covenant. Sin is a refusal to abide by the terms and conditions of God's covenant, and it's an active obstinance 
towards God's will. So we're not speaking just vaguely here. The, the, you know, the gospel deals with sin. Yes, we agree with that. But how? Why does it deal with sin? Well, the problem is our condemnation in Adam and the resolution and, and sin being this transgression of God's covenant. God has given us stipulations. We have chosen to, to not obey them. We're born into that condition. So we have to be specific. Now, all of that comes rushing out of Adam's rebellion in the garden. All of it pours out of the garden, that whole, the, the whole thing, really. When Adam and Eve sinned, the primary ambition, the primary ambition that fueled the sin, that fueled the rebellion, was their desire to know and determine good and evil like God. So we're, we're, now we're drilling down deep here. Not just a violation of God's standards, there's this intrinsic, um, it's sort of a, it's a feature of sin, if you want to call it, or a defect, maybe we can say it in those terms. But there's this idea, this, this um, covenantal transgression that's rooted in the fact that Adam and Eve, that ambition of desiring to determine good and evil on their terms, that was the problem. Now, this, this humanistic impulse was the first time in history when man decided that he wanted to be his own ethical standard. Man wanted to be his own ethical grid, his own... He wanted to be um, the transcendent in the covenantal relationship. Um, he wanted his own version of a righteousness, his own version of justice, his own version of, of that which is good and right and true. Adam and Eve wanted autonomy or self-directed, self-prescribed, self-law. That's sin. Now, I, I'm telling you all this sort of on the front end because I want us to consider the things that Jesus says here to sort of get, hopefully put our finger on what he's trying to get at, but also see it in a context. We, I want you to see and consider what Jesus says here in light of Israel's history, which comes before him. So in other words, Jesus speaks about a lot of things that are rooted in a very particularly Jewish historical context. And this context gives us the shape and meaning of what he intends to communicate. Now, again, because this is such a large passage, we're not going to go through every single thing. Um, we're going to take a bird's eye view, but I am going to give you sort of a summary, some context, so you get really the main thrust of the passage. In verses 1 through 15, we learn about the fourth miracle or the fourth sign of John's seven signs. He gives us seven signs in his story because he has clearly wanted to demonstrate there's this new creation week. There is a new order of things. There's the new covenant, the new humanity. All of it is there in the text. Jesus and his disciples, they are on the other side of Galilee, and there's this large crowd that gathers. And they continued, really, to follow him, mostly because of the miracles they witnessed. They really liked to see the miracle worker. Now, that's an important point. We'll come back to you. John tells us that it's the Passover, which is another important detail. It's the Passover. This is the second of three. Jesus saw the sheep there. He saw the crowds. He saw they were hungry. And he, and he tests his disciples here by asking them to figure out a way to feed everyone. Now, in their limited minds, much like ours, resources are in short supply, and there's just no way to do it. But Jesus can do it, and of course, he does do it, and so what does he do? He has the sheep lie down in the green pastures so that he can provide for them. 
So if you're thinking of Psalm 23, you should be. That's a good thing. Jesus takes the five barley loaves and the two fish, and he gives thanks to God. Eucharisto, that's the verb. He gives thanks to God. That's where we get the word Eucharist. He gives thanks, and then there's a miracle that happens. He feeds the multitude, so much so that they end up having 12 baskets left. This is clearly an eschatological miracle, one which demonstrates the fullness, indeed the excessiveness of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, the blessings of God's kingdom. Look at verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. We're going to come back to this, but just mark that. This born-in-a-manger king won't be made king on their terms. This is a very important verse that's going to set the stage for what's to come. In verses 16 to 25, the disciples, they go looking for Jesus because he hadn't returned yet. They don't know where he's at. We know from the synoptics that Jesus went away to pray, so, but they don't know that in the text. They, they get in a boat They try to cross the sea, and where they're heading is Capernaum, which is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It was dark, which would have made the trip very difficult. According to verse 18, a storm began to be stirred up, and after getting three or four miles out, uh, the Sea of Galilee being about 12 miles wide, they begin to worry. A storm comes, and they they get worried. What worries them most, however, is the fact that they see Jesus walking on the sea coming towards them. Perhaps they felt like it was an apparition of sorts. But Jesus says, it is I, or rather, I am. I am, do not be afraid. He calms the storm and calms them. And we know from Matthew that Jesus invited Peter, if you remember, to come out and walk on the water as well. And Peter does for a moment and then sinks because he gets scared. But Jesus calms the storm and then he brings everybody to the shore. That's number five. That's the fifth sign of John's seven signs in his gospel account. But I want to point out something before we keep going. Why is this scenario here the way it is? And why is it connected the way it is to the rest of the passage? Well, for one, the disciples, this is conjecture, but I think it's a logical piece of conjecture. The disciples were probably quite disappointed in Jesus at this point. Their despondency in the storm is actually a revelation of the despondency that was rooted in their hearts, their souls. They wanted a king, but did Jesus go along with what everybody wanted? No. They had expectations. The disciples, no doubt, and we know from other passages, they wanted a piece of the kingdom pie. They wanted Jesus to be king. And here's an opportunity. You have a crowd. You've fed them. You've brought them along. And you can be king. They're ready to do it. They're ready to to dethrone the powers that be and install Jesus Christ as king. But he's already king. He doesn't go with what they want. Probably the disciples were a little disappointed. He had captured the attention of the crowds. Why not start the kingdom movement this way? Now we know, according to Isaiah 9, 6, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a, a son is given... And the government, uh, the, 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 the burden of running the universe is on his shoulders. Jesus was born to be a king. But we also know that Jesus' kingship was a lot different. It was of a different sort. We know 
from Scripture that God controls the storm. And so I see the miracle of Jesus walking on the water as being a lesson for the disciples. No one else was there. Uh, it's a lesson for us because we can read it by God's grace. We have it. But no, none of the crowds were there. That was a lesson for them. They were there. In other words, they, they were distraught because they thought they were following a king. And so Jesus demonstrates his kingship by showing them that they are thinking way too short-sighted here. Jesus is Lord over everything, including nature. That's his authority. Now this is a very, very direct revelation of his true kingship, his true authority. And he does have it, but not in the way that they think. Again, this whole process will not be on man's terms. After the incident, the crowds chase Jesus down, and after finding him at the other side of the sea, they ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, they need answers because they want a God in their image. These are sort of, um, this isn't meant to be a pun, but they're breadcrumbs to the great bread of life moment. He's stringing us along here. They want to know where Jesus is. They want to make him king. He's king, or is he? Well, yes, he is. He's Lord over nature. John is stringing us along here, giving us to the, giving us to the great bread of life section. Now, in the next section, Jesus is in the synagogue. Um, verse 59 tells us that. And he explains to the people what is going on. He calls them out for wanting signs. He calls them out for wanting food, which is not how one is to seek Jesus. That's not how you seek Jesus. You don't seek him by the vending machine cosmic Jesus where you punch in a quarter and out comes a miracle. That's not the picture of Jesus we're supposed to, to, to have. They are working, they are working that is searching and seeking for food that perishes, Jesus says. They are not working and searching for food which gives eternal life. Jesus says he has the Father's seal. That Father's seal was affirmed to him on his baptism. And it's Jesus who gives food that lasts forever. Now, curiously enough, they want to know, they want to know how to do the works of God. They ask the question, how do we do the works of God? And so Jesus tells them that the work that they must do, they must believe in him who he has sent. That's the work of God, believing We oftentimes think of the work of God in terms of a works-based salvation, and that certainly fits. But the working is a believing. That's the way Jesus frames it. Work is, is just a manner of speaking about how one seeks for God, how one searches for God. And it's actually quite simple. They are to have faith. They are to believe on Him. This isn't sufficient, according to their calculations. So, having heard this from Jesus in verse 30. They want another sign. That's not enough for us. We need another sign. Their fathers were given manna by Moses. Can Jesus give them more to eat, provide for them, even like Elisha had done too? And Jesus clarifies that it was his father who gave the manna, not Moses. And the bread that they need is Jesus himself, for that's the only way to find life. Jesus, in other words, is the manna. Which is ironic. I had an Old Testament prof who joked the word manna means what is this? And so having a conversation about manna, what is this? What is this? What is this manna? Jesus is a who. It's not a what. He is the manna. But they don't see it. Now, they think they do, but they don't. And they want this bread all. 
always, the text says in verse 34, which is exactly what the woman at the well had said about water. Give, us, give me this water always. Now Jesus goes into another moment of teaching by telling them that he is the bread of life. And those who come to him, they will never hunger. And those who believe in him will never thirst. Verse 35. They don't believe in him, and thus they don't come. Only those that the Father gives to the Son come to Jesus. Verse 37. Jesus has come to do his Father's will. He's not interested in his own self-directed will. He's in completely in tune with the, the Father and the Spirit. But he's come to do his Father's will. And that will, according to the text, is for Jesus to never lose anyone that the Father has given him. And the result of this is a person being raised on the last day. Jesus doesn't lose Christians. A lot of times people debate the whole thing about salvation. Can, can a Christian lose his salvation? Well, that's maybe starting from the wrong presupposition. Does Jesus lose Christians? Does Jesus lose someone? He's declared not guilty. He's put his spirit inside of them. Does Jesus lose any of them? No, he does not. See, the will of the Father here is that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and resurrection life. Verse 40. Now at this point, as is the custom of Jesus' interaction with the leaders, the religious leaders become furious because Jesus claims to be bread from heaven. Not just bread, bread from heaven. And these audacious claims of equality with God are enraging them. It's fuel for the fire. How could he be from heaven? How could he be from heaven? We know his parents. They're right over there. Joseph and Mary. Why? How can he say that he's from heaven? Yet Jesus tells them not to grumble. See, listen, no one comes to the Father unless the Father breaks their dead heart and drags them to the Son by the Spirit. That's, what's, that's the truth here. No one comes to the Father unless the Father breaks their dead heart and drags them along to the Son by the power of the Spirit. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the better manna. And the only way to have salvation and liberation is to eat the bread of life. They must eat his flesh. They must drink his blood because there is no life in those dead in Adam. Now the tables are turned to the disciples here in the end of this, end of this passage. They're grumbling as well. And he challenges them about who he is as the Son of Man and that he's going to ascend to the throne of David in heaven. That's verse 62. We're told here that the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing, and Jesus' words are, quote, Spirit and life, verse 63. Yet some of them still do not believe. Many, many followers withdrew from him because, because of the hard nature of his teaching. And Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to go away too? And Peter, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? The famous words, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have, come to, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, verses 68 and 69. However, the end, we get a little tip of what's to come. There's one of them is a devil, Judas the betrayer. So that's a quick overview of the text. What do we do with it? How are we supposed to apply it? What are, we, what are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to make of it? Well, to begin, really at the center of the passage is a truth that cuts to the heart of the matter. And all of us need to hear this. God must be approached on God's terms, not man's terms. God must be approached on God's terms, 
not man's terms. They want a king, but Jesus will have none of it. Rabbi, where are you? The disciples, distraught, not just by the storm, but by the fact that Jesus had just turned down the whole king job. He comes and demonstrates his power as Lord. God will not, we cannot come to God on our terms, but it must be on, on, on his terms. Jesus Christ claiming to be the bread of life means that all bets are off the table now. All bets are off the table. This is a zero-sum game situation. Either man will have Christ on his terms, or man will attempt to have them on their own terms. Remember Adam. If the former is chosen, eternal life awaits. If we come to Christ on his terms, eternal life awaits. But if the latter option is chosen, where we want a God in our image, where we want to fashion a God that fits our fancies, well, then eternal condemnation Awaits, But know this, there is no glory sharing here. There is no glory sharing. God will not and does not share his glory with another. That's Isaiah 42.8. But the fact that Jesus has exclusive rights as the bread of life means that God is not interested in condescending to man to get his counsel and opinion on matters. Either you will partake of him as bread of life or you will not. But you may not nibble on him or send him back to the kitchen for a (laughs) do-over. We don't like this bread. Give us a different type of bread. See, Jesus does not intend to satisfy your curiosities. He's not there to play the game. The crowds wanted the miracle. The crowds were after some sort of action. They liked this Jesus. He was nice. He did nice things like feeding 5,000 plus people. He's a good guy. We want him on our side. He should probably be king. And no doubt they wanted him to be king because in their minds they're thinking of David, the whole, he makes me lie down in pasture, green pastures. He prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies. They're thinking kingship. All of this is there. But Jesus will have none of it. He will not have any of it because he's not there to satisfy our curiosities. He's just not. As the bread of life, Jesus claims complete and total control over man's liberation. Complete and total control over man's liberation. He claims complete and unending control over it all. The, the, the very word who created all things, right? Nothing was made that was made apart from him. He's the one now coming on the sea, walking on the waters. There's a lot of prophetic passages about that. One that was read from Isaiah 40. He, he has command of the seas, and he shows his kingdom and authority right there to his disciples, assuring them of who he is. So there's no other bread but God's bread. Now, there is pretended bread. There's bread that's produced in the enemy's bakery, um, but that's not the bread of life. That's the bread of death. It's counterfeit bread, if you will. Only in Christ is life dispensed, and only as Christ is man free. See, part of, when we think of the eternal life here, um, a lot of times we just sort of jump to heaven. But eternal life isn't simply just out there in the future for us to be waiting around to be grasped. Eternal life is life in God's kingdom. And, and we're told to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a foretaste. Eternal life, those of you who are in Christ, you have turned from him by his grace, you are experiencing eternal life on the front end. 
Now, at the center of it is the exclusivity of Christ as the bread of life. And not just who he is and, and being the bread of life, but what it is we're supposed to do with him. What are we supposed to do with him? More important than what Jesus can do for you lies the truth of who he is and how you respond to him. So what are you supposed to do? Well, as bread of life, he gives life and he sustains man. Not only does this bread give you life, it sustains you to have this life. Man shall not live by bread alone, right? But by what? The very word of God. So man, as, as the bread of life, he gives life and he sustains life. But the only way life can be given is when we partake of him, when man partakes of him. And in order for you to partake in Christ, this bread of life, you and I have to come to him. But, but one thing Jesus makes clear is that that can only happen when the Spirit of God drags us along. In other words, from start to finish... The grace of God is the great liberator of man. And even if the liberation looks like kicking and screaming, <laughs> it's sort of this idea of, you know, because no one walks around. I don't think they do. Maybe they do. I've never met anyone. But no one walks around and just says, I'm great. I, I chose Jesus, and I'm a great person. And, boy, his grace is great, but, man, the fact that I chose him is greater. No one talks like that. And that's because all of us in this room can give testimony to the fact that it's Christ who saved us, Christ who changes us, Christ who sustains us every single day. And that's not something to boast in about us. That's to boast in him. Now, we learn from this passage that we must not merely see this bread. We must not merely learn about the bread. We cannot only hear about this bread or even just believe that the bread exists. Jesus won't leave it that way. He won't leave it on the table that way. Jesus says that we must eat this bread. That is, we must partake of his flesh, his humanity. Why must we partake of Christ's flesh and drink his blood? And why was that so utterly offensive? That's the question we need to ask. We must partake of Christ's flesh because only when we eat and drink him do we participate in his covenant life. Start there. Only when we partake of him do we participate in his covenant life. We do not come to his divinity in order to become divine. That's the great problem of the humanist agenda. That's one that, that Greek philosophy knew a whole lot about. We don't come to Jesus' divinity to become divine. No, we come to his flesh, we come to his humanity in order to become truly human. That's the issue here. The gospel makes humans humans again. Remember the condemnation in Adam? When we're in Christ, the second Adam, King Adam the second, what does Romans 8 tell us? There's no condemnation. That's the great reversal. When we don't come to his divinity to become divine, this whole theosis discussion. No, we come to his humanity so that we can be humans, rightful humans, fully restored image bearers of God. So as I said from the start, the gospel deals with that condemnation. And the way it is dealt with is, is covenantal. It's completely covenantal. When Jesus insists that we must drink him, he's insisting that we see him for who he truly is. 
Jesus Christ is our covenantal head. He's our federal head. He's our representative. He's, our, he's the federal head of a brand new humanity. He's establishing a new army of humans on this earth. And in order for there to be this new creation, though, there has to be a new humanity to go along with it. And the way that Christ, the second Adam, gets this humanity is by offering himself as the bread of life. It's interesting, the parallels with the book of Genesis. Here, Adam and Eve are grasping for fruit that was forbidden, and they took it, and they fell in sin. Here, Jesus is the bread of life that they are commanded to eat. And in that same action of eating, it's all undone. We go from eating that which was forbidden and then violating the covenant to eating that which was provided to being brought back into the covenant. So we must eat his flesh, we must eat his, drink his blood, but that's not to be taken literally as we'll see in a moment. We are called to come to Christ on his terms. The terms and conditions are, belong to him. And we oftentimes, we try to spiritualize this, what he demands here, right? But we are body and soul. We are body and soul. So therefore, we must see our participation in Christ as being more than mere, mere metaphysical sentimentalism. See, to be human then means that we must eat and drink the covenantal blessing found in his sacrificial death. And as a side note here, this is something that came to mind. We, in our effort at spiritualizing all of this, what we are doing, the implication is we are divorcing ourselves from things like justice, divorcing our thing, like speaking for the preborn, like defending the rights of those who can't defend themselves. When we spiritualize all this stuff and compartmentalize it, we are, in effect, sort of doing a twofer here. We are saying that the tangible, earthy stuff, like Monday morning, you got to go and change out toilets, half of you. <laughs> and, and we divorce that action from this spiritual stuff, right? Because... Because uh, I'm going to write another sermon this week, and that's super spiritual. While you changing toilets are not doing anything, that's what we think. And so we create God's world in this dualistic sense, and we mess it all up. So this isn't supposed to be you feeling sentimental about Jesus being the bread of life. This is you commanded to come to him day by day by day by day to be sustained by him over and over and over again. See, this passage is John's upper room story. We don't have an upper room story in John's gospel. We have it in the other three gospels, but not in John's. And what you and I need to see, though, and in, in, in what we need is his humanity. We need the humanity of Jesus Christ. We need his flesh. We need his sacrifice. We need his blood poured out on the cross, Good Friday. We need that. We need him elevated up so that we can look to him like the, the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent to be saved. We need the actual physical earthy Jesus' blood poured out on the cross so that we can be free, so that we can be liberated. We need his death so that we can die. We need his resurrection so that we can be raised. And so all of this is just covenantal language all over the place. So one thing, though, why was this so offensive? Well, the short answer is this. The way of the kingdom is centered on Christ, and thus the kingdom itself 
is a great offense to men who prefer their pride and their selfish ambition. Jesus being bread of life means you're not. Or your person next to you. Or anything in the world. You're not. The kingdom is focused on Christ. And because of the, the exclusivity of Christ being bread of life, your pride, your selfish ambition, there's no room for it. You can't have the bread of life and your own pride. You can't eat both of them. See, the crowd's demand for the bread and the miracles was a great demand, but Christ's demands are even greater. And listen, especially you kids, pay attention to this. The crowd demanding bread when the bread of life is standing there before them is like a child who is fussing about wanting a a crumb on the floor when there's a king's banquet on the table right in front of them. That's the same thing. Fussing about wanting the bread again from heaven when you have the bread of life to partake of right in front of you. Such is the short-sightedness of man and children and adults at times. Now, while some scholars will say that the offense was the literalness of Christ's words, because drinking blood, um, according to God's law, was and is um, prohibited in God's law, but the reality is there was something else going on in this exchange. And, and I want to I make the connection for you, and then we'll wrap up. In 2 Samuel 23, you may want to go back and read this later if you want. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 17, we read this. And David said, talking about King David, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore David would not drink the water. These things the three mighty men did. What's going on here? Well, (laughs) I think Jesus is speaking about something related to David. I don't think he's just saying things like, you should eat my flesh and drink my blood. He is saying that, but it means something. Back in 2 Samuel 23, at this point, it was David's reign. He's king. But at this point, though, the Philistines had occupied Bethlehem. They were at war with the Philistines. Philistines were at... Um, occupying Bethlehem. Um, So David's at war with them, but they're in Bethlehem, which was Israelite territory. They shouldn't have been there. David, at one point, he longs for a drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is near the the city gate. And his mighty men, his three closest, um, we'll call them the secret service if you want, his mighty men who loved David, they laid his life down for him, These three men loved David to the point where they went, they broke into the camp of the Philistines in Bethlehem, and they drew water from from that well, and they brought it back to David. And David gets the water from the men, and what does he do? He dumps it on the ground. Now, why would he do that? He wanted the water. He longed for this water. Why would David do that? Well, in his eyes... David refused to drink the blood of the men who risked their lives. So yes, it was water, but what, they, but what did it take for those men to actually get water from Bethlehem when it's enemy-occupied territory? They had to risk their lives to get it. They risked, they quite literally risked their own blood. And drinking this water for David would have been akin to drinking their blood. And David, being the shrewd king that he is, that he was, 
He wouldn't have any of that. He refused, David refused to profit from their willingness to put their lives on the line for the king. Now I submit to you, therefore, that Jesus picks up on this story and turns it on his head. The only way for men to profit from his compulsory liberation project is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is not about cannibalism, uh, nor is it merely just a metaphor that's randomly detached. Jesus means what David means, but he flips it on its head. He is greater than David. Remember the Davidic themes here? I mean, John tells us they lie down in green, uh, green pasture. He's the shepherd who's feeding and providing for them. David's all over John chapter 6. So it makes sense that he would invoke David again. He's the greater David. He's the true king of all kings. And Jesus is going to put his life on the line, not the lives of others who are trapped in sin. And Jesus is going to go to the cross, and he's going to die. His blood is going to be poured out. And guess what? If they drink his blood... They receive the benefit. He put his life on the line. They get the benefit. Their thirst and their hunger will be satisfied. They get the benefit. His death will quench the ultimate, quench the ultimate um, satisfaction that they need, their hunger and thirst for life forever. See, this compulsion is grace and the liberation is a byproduct to it. The broken body of Jesus and the subsequent spilling of his blood, of his risk-taking sacrifice, that gives us the benefit, that gives us the freedom. And all of it is on his terms, not man's terms. Jesus will not be an instrument of human enthusiasm. He will not be an instrument of human enthusiasm, or will he be the poster child of human imagination. Jesus will have none of it. You will either come to him on his terms, or you will not. And man will not be allowed to make Christ in their image. That's the beauty of the glorious gospel because it's about him. And so we must be encouraged, we must be emboldened, we must, must behold him. And to that we say glory to God. Let's pray.